what does it actually take for the industry to get to net zero by 2050? What are the different changes that we need to see happen? What are the recommendations to different players within the industry, to policy, to governments, to subnational governments? And so UKGBC has been thinking for a long time about things in a holistic and systems thinking way. But what we're trying to do now is really like tackle that system point really head on. It's not just that, well, architects need to do this a bit and engineers need to do this a bit and specialist subcontractors need to do this a bit. It's about the whole industry needing to sort of collectively decide to do things differently. Welcome to Stand Tall with Rachel Bell, brought to you by Stride Triglown. Stand Tall is conversations with people blazing a trail across property, architecture, engineering and construction. Expect fast-flowing conversations about life, careers and defining moments. And stay tuned for the quickfire questions towards the end for pearls of wisdom, advice and humour. Today, I'm joined by a true industry trailblazer, Smith Mordak. Smith is an award-winning architect, engineer and writer, working across disciplines to realise a regenerative economy and built environment. As former Director of Sustainability and Physics at Bureau Happold, a one-time committee member at Architects Declare, and a current board member of the Journal of City Climate Policy and Economy, Smith has a long-standing reputation for driving industry action on climate change. Their work in this field began a new chapter in July 2023, when Smith was appointed Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council. In this episode, we talked about strategies for a transition to a fair and sustainable built environment, some of the cultural and political levers needed to enable change, and the importance of breaking down industry silos. Smith also offers up some valuable tips for maintaining personal optimism and resilience in the face of global crisis. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Good morning, Smith, and welcome to the Stand Tool podcast. I'm really glad that you can join us today. Good morning, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So, Smith, I wondered if we could just start with you describing what your current role is. Sure. So, I'm Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council. I've been in post for just over three months now, and yeah, it's fantastic. (laughs) We've got a team of um, just over 40 people, and we have over 700 organizational members, and we're sort of yeah, trying to affect change in the built environment, try to make us all more sustainable and address the climate and biodiversity crises. All absolutely key at the moment. I wonder if we can just start a huge congratulations anyway, and just achieving the first three months in that role. Um, but what inspired you first to go into that role? So I have been working in the built environment for 20 years, first as an architect and artist As a writer, I've been working with different trade press and then I also worked in engineering. I've got an engineering degree as well that I did on the side. I've been sort of working within this area for a long time, trying to find ways to, I guess, like break down barriers. A lot of my early work was around involving communities in the changes that are happening in their towns, streets, working on public art projects, public consultation, public engagement and co-creating designs together. I became increasingly, I think, interested in the general sort of business model of construction, the built environment, the property industry, and increasingly interested in the sort of the wider economic 
situation, I guess, that we find ourselves in and the ways in which I was kind of seeing economic pressures play out at a local community level amongst like kids and young people. Um, and, you know, also you know, ourselves within the industry. You know, I think a lot of us who've worked in architecture understand that there are sort of, especially when you're early on in your career, it's really, really challenging. And yeah, the more I was sort of, I guess, getting more involved in the, the wider commentary around the industry, the more it became about the climate crisis. Yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently because I didn't, I didn't come into sort of sustainability through initially thinking about like pollution in our watercourses or seeing emissions rise or something like that. I kind of came at it from more of a kind of people perspective and sort of seeing the, the stresses and systems of oppression that, um, that are at play and sort of realizing the more I kind of read and the more I looked into it and the more I spoke to people, the more I realized all of these things are interlinked. So I worked more and more sort of broadly around those kind of interconnected systems, I suppose. I was going to say, is there a pivotal moment that kind of made you, I mean, you've described that you you were in architecture, were both Bath alumni. There was quite a crossover with engineering during that architectural course. And obviously, yeah, you, you've, you've picked up an open university engineering degree as well. Is there something that sort of stands out as the moment that was the light bulb? This is the direction. This is what I'm going to do, change, achieve. There's not really a light bulb moment. It's an aggregation of many small fairy lights. When I decided to study architecture, I'd never met an architect. I, you know, I didn't come from a background where I knew architects or that there were architects in my like my life, my parents' social circles, anything like that. So I, you know, I had this idea that, oh, buildings and cities and like, this is what kind of can make the world better somehow. And this is how things can be good for us all kind of thing. It felt like something that was interesting, but also important. And, um, but I, I didn't go into it with loads of knowledge like when I was a teenager. I thought there would be a lot more maths involved. One of the reasons that I went to Bath was because I really liked that the first year was taught together, like the architects and their structural engineers are sort of all taught together. And I really enjoyed that year. And then I also, the reason I went to Bath was because we could do the Erasmus program, which I don't think you do anymore. So I could spend a year abroad and I went to TU Delft in the Netherlands and that was amazing. And I studied like film and philosophy and all these other things. I went in with, you know, it was, I was naive. I thought like, yeah, I'll go into this industry that seems really important, that shapes the world around us. And then that, some, that somehow I can like do my part and like make an impact, make things better. I guess the more I got into it, the more I was sort of frustrated with the silos. So I was frustrated that architects had like a very kind of what felt like a very narrow scope and that the engineers also were kind of confined to this place of sort of just making an architect's vision possible. Um, that felt very confining. And also the engineers are like a brilliant, like um, sort of smart, interesting, creative people that with a huge knowledge and expertise that's so often like really confined to a little area and isn't sort of being involved in the, the, the wider strategy enough, it felt to me. And so, yeah, I wanted to try to break down those silos and blend those two things together. And I felt that, you know, in that, in that way, we can kind of address these great problems of our age, you know, the great social issues, the environmental issues. And so then that like just obviously led to but because this is where we live, we live in this sort of point of climate crisis. I was doing more and more reading, more understanding about sort of what's going on there around the science and just realized that that's the focus that I need to have for the immediate future anyway. I'm probably going to retire in 2050. So <laughs> it would be nice that on my retirement day, we're at net zero, right? <laughs> 
So you mentioned a, a little earlier about barriers. Are there any particular barriers that you're feeling across the sort of built environment at the moment as we sort of try and transition into this new way of learning and developing and addressing how we we look to 2030, 2050? There are loads of barriers. I think fundamentally, there are things that we need, big things that we kind of know we need, like retrofitting homes and um, addressing embodied carbon of new developments generally and the energy transition and working out how to make buildings kind of a active dynamic part of the electricity grid. You know, all, all of these things that need to happen and mean sort of quite a big change. And then there are all the skills and all the experience and all of the knowledge that we within the built environment have. And there seems to be this problem of like, well, how can we get those skills and those resources into the right places in order to enable that transition to happen? And I think there are a number of different barriers around that. Things like communication and education and logistical things about like, well, actually, how do we make sure that we've got the right people in the right places having the right conversations? I think some of that is eased by organizations. Like the reason I'm attracted to the UK Green Buildings Council is because it plays a role in addressing those things that we can convene people from across the industry, from across disciplines, from across geographical regions in order to like, okay, let's understand what the problem is and let's sort of identify solutions to those problems and let's share those solutions so that we can all implement them. And so then there's a kind of like overcoming those kind of logistical things. That was one of my key sort of questions was there's so many organisations, if you look at like Letty, ROBA, SIBSI, et cetera, across the industry, can the UK Green Building Council then become that joiner together of all these amazing ideas and actually collectively come to some answers rather than silos, each doing their own bit and not collectively um, trying to pull that together? Is that part of your remit and your purpose then? Yeah, I mean, the UK GBC is one in an ecosystem of changemakers in this space. And I think we have a really important role to play as convener within that wider ecosystem. That's not to say that there aren't other sort of conveners in collective organizations and institutions. But I think we, all of us, we need to be sort of really thinking about like, well, what is it that we are uniquely best placed to do? What is it that others are uniquely best placed to do? And how can we support those aims? How can we make sure that we understand each other's purposes and sort of not become kind of accidental adversaries because we're all sort of working towards the same goals ultimately of planet that can support life and allow kind of beautiful flourishing lives for everybody on it but it, it's it's an increasingly complex area like over the years that I've been working in sustainability more and more people have formed different kinds of groups and um, different groups have sort of focused more on sustainability it's it's kind of the the complexity there is increasing and I think we need to not shy away from that. I think it's it's a great thing because there's so much to do, but we do have to communicate with each other and talk with each other and sort of collaborate with each other and partner in sort of maybe sometimes quite radical ways. But I love that. It's one of the nicest things about my career world's life <laughs> is, is being able to bring together people who have interesting and complementary skills and experiences and like together figuring something out it's really really great and I mean you've alluded to some of the sort of the change of maybe education and the roles that educators can play in trying to upskill uh, the next generation what kind of new skills or what do you think 
needs to be addressed kind of at this moment looking to the future? Yeah, so I think, firstly, I don't think it's about educating the next generation. I think it's about educating all of us or rather that we all need to learn. When I think about education, it's not a kind of top-down kind of teacher educates pupil. Obviously, there's some of that and there are people who have more experience and more skills and more knowledge and they should share that. But I think we all need to learn to work differently. We all need to learn to inhabit our buildings and spaces differently. And that's something that we all need to like support each other to make that change. And I think at a kind of very high level, it's about how do we make decisions together about how best to use resources. So for example, how do we decide collectively when we should run our washing machines or when we should watch Netflix? <laughs> you know, like when should we use more energy and when should we actually, we should back off, we should rely on our batteries, we should do something that doesn't use a lot of energy. Like how do we have the kind of physical, digital, but also social infrastructure in place to make sure that we understand when, when it's okay to use things and when maybe we should be a bit more careful and prudent about when we use things. And that sort of happens like kind of over time in terms of using electricity, for example, but also around like, well, how do we make best use of scarce resources? We only have so much copper that we can use and that can be included within infrastructure and so on, or so much lithium or like, how do we collectively make decisions about, well, where should we prioritize that? And where should we make sure that, you know, these things are distributed so that we as a society can kind of function and are healthy and have the kind of common infrastructure in place. When we're thinking about climate resilience, this is really, really important because like in a extreme weather event, we don't all have, and we shouldn't all have kind of individually like massive aircon units in every single room in our houses kind of things. But that sometimes mean that we need to congregate together in, in cool spaces, in spaces that are sort of passively designed so that there is, you know, good thermal mass and so on, so that we can, we can be comfortable in a cooler space together. And that, again, that's a kind of a way of sharing resources that's only going to become more important as the climate changes further, which is absolutely, it's going to do, even if we stop emitting today, the climate is going to keep changing and keep getting more extreme. We're going to have more shocks or, you know, if there's water scarcity, how do we collectively decide there will be, and there is water scarcity. How do we collectively decide, well, what should we do with the water that we have and how do we make sure that we distribute that? And I don't think we yet have all of the infrastructure in place, especially the social infrastructure in place in order to make those collective decisions. And so I think it's, it's a change of mindset. So like, how do we share stuff fundamentally? And also make sure that it's accessible for everyone, that it includes everyone. People are able to, you know, if the idea about, solar panels battery storage retrofitting homes all of that it's it's the accessibility of funds support from government anything from that side that not everyone's going to be able to afford to be able to do these changes to their homes or reach out to new technologies etc I suppose going into that and looking at sort of support more widely then what changes do you believe are sort of crucial in I suppose, policy making to then support effective change and how can that be influenced going forward? Yeah, so I mean, we try to campaign for better environmental uh, legislation and law that affects the built environment differently and that's difficult, but 
not without its wins. We recently, there was a, a vote in the House of Lords the other day to kind of agree to place climate mitigation and resilience at the heart of the planning system. That's really, really important. The planning system is such an important collective decision-making tool around what goes ahead and what doesn't go ahead. So it absolutely, it's, you know, it's critical that we have climate represented within that. And so things like that are very, very important that the government includes. We're doing a big piece of work at the moment on retrofit, understanding the level of investment and also the kind of infrastructure that needs to be in place to allow everybody um, to be able to access the knowledge, funding, resources in order to retrofit all of our homes. Um, and that's, yeah, it's a really it's a difficult and challenging issue. We're not going to do that without sort of good government legislation and infrastructure. And I think that's one of the really important things about thinking about what the governments can do as well, because like we need sort of carrots and sticks and infrastructure in terms of like carrots, like sort of incentives and things that make it kind of attractive to do something. We need sticks in terms of we need regulation to, you know, things like building regulations and so on. So, you know, for example, having embodied carbon included within building regulations means that there are some sort of clear lines that shouldn't be crossed. But really importantly, and I just feel like this sometimes gets forgotten when we keep going on about carrots and sticks, is the infrastructure piece. Like we need the infrastructure in place in order to enable all of these things to happen. Like imagine a world where there was no water infrastructure and we were all just like shipping lots of water about, you know, it would be so much more difficult to manage water scarcity in that world. And in the same way, it's so difficult to apply uh, circular economy principles in the built environment because we don't have that infrastructure in place. We don't have those uh, infrastructures in place in order to share resources in that way. So we need to make sure that the infrastructure, when we do have infrastructure like water and electricity and so on, we need to make sure that that's really good and well-maintained. And I really recommend the Eleanor Ostrom principles for like how to collectively look after common resources because I think that's essentially what we're trying to do here. And where there isn't infrastructure in place, we need to create it. And that is something that has to happen at the scale of government. And you mentioned, obviously, the, the recent kind of success on, on changing some policy. Has there been any other sort of real success stories where there's been some political support to really significantly contribute to something that's really going to have an impact? I mean, yeah, you know, for example, we, we recently saw the National Adaptation Plan, most recent National Adaptation Plan come out from government. And it's a really missed opportunity. There could have been so much more in there in order to really acknowledge the, the level of work that needs doing to adapt our built environment in the face of the changing climate. And the level of ambition that we need wasn't there. We're continuing to, you know, work towards that. And, you know, it's really important to stay optimistic and stay hopeful and keep working, you know, with the breadth of the political spectrum, given that we're sort of coming up to a general election year as well, and to keep conversations going. And, you know, we have good conversations across the political spectrum that do kind of continue to give us reason to keep going. <laughs> but it is really challenging. I think, you know, we saw a increase in attention around COP26 when COP was here in the UK and we did see more leadership from our government around that time. It's been more challenging recently, but there are still things in place and there are still conversations in place. We've still got the future home standard and the future building standard in train. We obviously need to work to make sure that they are actually ambitious enough, that they are proportionate with the scale of the crisis. And that's not going to be an easy thing. 
we need to work to make sure that the general election, when it does come, that, you know, that climate mitigation and adaptation and the climate resilience um, and the biodiversity crisis as well are all like front and center of every single political party's manifestos of these conversations. This is quite possibly the final government that really is going to have an opportunity to make substantial change. So it's really scary. But yeah, we keep on keeping on. <laughs> so could you just describe then maybe a, a sort of a day in the life then of uh, Smith in your current role? What what type of things would you be doing and who would you be in sort of reaching out to each day to to help you sort of, I suppose, get inspired, but also believe that, you know, change can happen and that we can we can do this? I think that change can happen because I speak to people all the time who still think it's worth trying. And I think we're all people, like even in people who are working in big, difficult, intransigent organizations are still people. And there are still people everywhere who are trying to work towards a better, fairer, more sustainable future. And so long as there are people and we're having these conversations and people are having conversations, then we keep on keeping on. And that's the thing that I think keeps me going. Typical day in the life. I mean, probably the same as everyone else's, you know, it's meetings and it's emails. And it's, it's, um, proofreading it's like all this good stuff but it's about I like this is maybe a bit personal but I'm a generalist I have broad interests lots of different things and what I try and do is like bring different things together so maybe I've read something that then I can kind of bring those ideas that were relevant in something that could even maybe seem sort of completely they feel completely different but actually there are relevant nuggets of ideas there that I could bring to another situation or I could bring to a different conversation. And I think that's sort of the value that I bring. I think it's about trying to build kind of understanding and consensus in groups that have very different perspectives, very different interests, very different kind of concerns and barriers and so on. Um, So it's, it's a lot of kind of conversations and it's a lot of listening and that happens at the small scale in terms of that, the team, but also at the large scale in terms of the membership. You mentioned a part there about understanding, and I know you're a fellow for the Centre of Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. What a thing to understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So I wondered if you could just describe a little bit about, obviously, you know, you studied, I think it's connected to the University of Surrey, isn't it? So you, you were studying there and, and obviously now a fellow for that. I was looking at the website and just extraordinary articles on there, you know, internationally as well, connecting conversations. Yeah, it'd be useful just to describe sort of how you've got connected into that. And, and again, your sort of your role through that. I studied ecological economics at the University of Surrey. I did a module. I don't have another degree. It's like, I'm not that preposterous. And the way they structure their courses is essentially you have, you do a kind of pre-course bit of reading and an essay, and then you do an intensive week where ev- all of the kind of contact time is smushed into one week. It's like a kind of really intense and wonderful conference. And it was one of the best weeks of my life. It was just brilliant sort of being there, meeting other people who were all really interested in this subject and thinking about like, well, how can we create an economy that is acknowledged as being like within society, within the environment, so that we don't have this kind of like 
three-legged stool model where we have all of these things pulling in different directions and how do we kind of create a balance between all these things pulling in different directions no within ecological economics it's that the economy is part of society which is part of the environment and that just makes sense to me as a model and so like operating within that framework then it's like well how do we address these crises and it was people who were doing different masters people who are doing phds people like myself who are just like come just for that module people who traveled like halfway around the world to do that module because it's um it's run by tim jackson who is yeah a brilliant spokesperson on this and writer and i remember like on the friday at the end i was like i was really emotional so like i don't want to leave i just want to live here um, <laughs> and then we did an essay afterwards and i wrote an essay about gender which was really interesting and uh, is yet to be published but that's a whole other conversation but then off the back of that i was just really looking for others to collaborate with to sort of stay in touch with who were exploring ecological economics from their different kind of sectoral perspectives um and so there's this fellowship program and we meet quarterly we can collaborate on projects on research projects i write for the blog a bit and it's just a really wonderful international community people who are yeah trying to like imagine a sustainable prosperous future that's what i'm all about <laughs> We'll definitely share the link to that website as well through the show notes, because as I say, the articles that I have been reading on there are uh, really, really extraordinary and, and great to be aware of. So looking forward then in terms of, you know, your role, you're three months in, what the future looked like. Have you set some future goals, aspirations for where you want to take that? And are there any particular projects or initiatives that are exciting you as much as that module at Surrey University? Yeah, so maybe one of the most exciting things to talk about that's coming up is our uh, systems change work. So we've been doing work for a long time that is sort of part of systems change in terms of thinking like very holistically about like, well, we need to look at the whole industry. Um, we need to think about, you know, how different parts of the industry are impacting each other, affecting each other. How do we take something like embodied carbon, for example, and look at how that attention on embodied carbon and sort of commitment to reduce embodied carbon affects different players in different ways. And so UKGBC has been thinking for a long time about things in a holistic and systems thinking way. But what we're trying to do now is really like tackle that system point really head on. So it's about understanding that it's not just individual actors doing things differently. It's not just that, well, architects need to do this a bit and engineers need to do this a bit and specialist subcontractors need to do this a bit. It's about the whole industry needing to sort of collectively decide to do things differently. So this piece around how do we make decisions about how we use scarce resources, for example, could involve things like sectoral agreements. It could mean that actually as a sector, we collectively agree that we're going to prioritize using resource X for Y instead of Z. And there are ways in which maybe we collectively identify, actually, we need a player that's doing, for example, reclaiming old steel members, reconditioning them and putting them back on the market. Like we need much more players doing that. So by analyzing the system as a whole, we can understand sort of where there are gaps and where we sort of need to focus more energy and resources in the system as a whole. Or we need to think about like, well, how does the system more broadly communicate? Um, how do we have channels of communication that allow learnings and successes, but also, you know, failures? It's really important that when failures happen, that they are absolutely learned from. 
Um, and so how do we have a kind of system of communication across the industry? Also, communication is really important because then you avoid things like the accidental adversaries problem where two organizations, two individuals, two people are kind of trying to do the same thing, but actually they're not helping each other because they're doing it slightly differently and they're doing it in a way that undercuts each other. And so it, it requires that kind of systems thinking approach in order to unpick those things. And then the most powerful thing about systems thinking is that you can see where the feedback loops are. And so you can see where actually there's a positive feedback loop here. So let's like throw loads of like resources into that, because if we can supercharge that, then we can really accelerate change. Or if there's something here that's like, it's almost at a tipping point. So actually, if we just a little bit more effort there, then we'll have a kind of huge cascade effect and then sort of big things change. And you can't really see that in a kind of day-to-day, I'm just going about my business kind of way. You, you need to come together with a group, diverse group of people. So we're assembling that diverse group of people with this express intention of understanding what is the system as a whole. What would be the the sort of the big ask then from the industry to help support you in in that? Well, at the moment, what we're looking for is for people to get involved in the program. We want to assemble a really diverse group so that different perspectives, different experiences, different voices come together so that we can do this work together. So at the moment, the ask is come and join us. In the run-up to COP26 and launched at COP26, we had a whole life carbon roadmap that was a huge, huge piece of industry collaboration to look at what does it look like? What does it actually take for the industry to get to net zero by 2050? What are the different changes that we need to see happen? What are the recommendations to different players within the industry, to policy, to governments, to subnational governments? And this was a really, really, it was a huge piece of collaboration and it was a really impactful piece of work. And that we're in the next couple of months as well going to be doing a kind of tracking update to see how we're doing as an industry compared to where we needed to be. So that will be very interesting. And we're doing that in preparation for COP28. But then the other thing we're doing is a resilience roadmap. So a a resilience piece to kind of complement the mitigation piece. And that's going to be really exciting because resilience is not like, it's not like mitigation in that it's not like a kind of linear route where we need to get to zero. Resilience is about understanding all of these different potential scenarios that we might be facing, all of these different potential hazards that we might be facing and having the tools in place to be able to deploy them should these things happen. So we're taking an adaptive pathways approach. So thinking about like, okay, we maybe we'll have a 1.5 degree future. Maybe we'll have much higher. What are the different trigger points that we need to understand? And if those trigger points occur, you know, if certain events happen, if the climate changes in certain ways, if we have certain extreme weather events that occur, kind of, you know, what do we need to do? What does the industry need to do? And what policies do we need in place so that we can have that resilience and adaptivity, is that word, <laughs> um, in the face of these different, in these different scenarios? So it's, it's quite interesting because it's a sort of a very divergent piece rather than a convergent piece in a really interesting way. But yeah, so we're developing the resilience roadmap. I mean, there, there are lots of things that we're doing, but those are kind of a couple of things that are coming up and very live at the minute. Excellent. Thanks for sharing those. And definitely we'll add some notes uh, for people to check out how they can get involved. Having been through quite a squiggly career, that's something I like to refer to someone who kind of, you know, has set out on quite a linear path as, you know, as you might imagine that an architecture route might be, but actually your squiggles have taken you in very many different directions. And I mean, reading through your 
bio Smith was absolutely inspiring. So I wonder when you're talking to students now or anyone looking to get into the industry and certainly sort of, yeah, the built environment industry, who's very much switched on to the climate crisis and sustainability, if they're struggling to sort of navigate what route they want to go, what would your sort of maybe top piece of advice be? Figure out what helps you think. So I worked out that what helps me think is book groups. I'm in four book groups and I find that like reading stuff together and discussing it really like helps me to understand the world and formulate my thoughts and understand my positions on things. And then I can bring that approach, which is, I guess, also discursive and a bit writerly. And that allows me to reflect critically on information in a way that I think is really important because there's so much, we've got so much information that we're being confronted with all the time. And some of it's really very depressing and very scary. And I think we need to be careful that we don't go into a kind of massive collective overwhelm. And I think the way that we do that is by making it possible to share with each other and support each other. And so, yeah, my book club kind of way of life um, is because then, you know, I can, I can share things with people and I can talk to other people about like, Oh, and this is really scary. And this is how we, and we can like support each other through processing the like really scary things that we're being confronted with so that we don't get super overwhelmed. And sometimes I get overwhelmed. Of course I do. Everybody does, but it's not kind of an insurmountable thing if we've kind of got that together. And maybe that's not just like a straight up kind of career advice thing. And because that's not going to suit everyone. Some people hate book clubs, but it's like just finding a way of like operating that allows you to have that like personal resilience and adaptation so that, yeah, you can kind of take information that you're confronted with and figure out your squiggly way through it. And what would be your number one book, maybe your current read? I'm just going to go with the closest book that is currently to me, which is the book that this microphone is balancing on. <laughs> And it's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengrow. And I'm halfway through it. It's for a book club. It's a really amazing kind of survey, but also critical reimagining of all of the ways in which we as humans have lived. And I find it really hopeful because I think it can often feel like in the face of climate change and biodiversity crisis and the cost of living crisis and like all the things like, oh, but people just won't do that. Like people can't do that. Oh, it's human nature. We can't do that. X, Y, Z, whatever it is. And I, and I get that. But somehow reading about like how people have lived in really different ways that we as a like species have been like endlessly creative, inventive, celebratory. Yes, sometimes some violent, but like innovative and adaptive makes me feel like we got this. <laughs> it also helps, I think, zoom out. Like it's not just about the next couple of years. We need to be thinking in these like long timescales and that helps me zoom out and maintain a bit of perspective. That's really good insight and really good advice. So just before we finish, I've got my quick fire round. So these are the questions that I ask all the guests on the Stand Tool podcast. So my mantra is Stand Tool and I wonder if you live by a mantra. Okay, so I'm going to go with lie flat. Because my point here is that it's really important to rest. It's really important to like have time 
to dream and imagine different worlds, to waste time and be inefficient. Um, I think we need that in order to have capacity for change. There's, we, there's a lot of change that we have to go through, and we're only going to have capacity for that change if we've got that kind of contingency time and rest time. And I really would recommend that people check out uh, Trisha Hersey's Nap Ministry. It's on Instagram. If we want to be able to like relish the important things in life, like relationships and care and so on, like we, we need to also really prioritize and value rest. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I started this year with one word. It's instead of a New Year's resolution. Um, so my word this year has been simplicity. It's been really hard to keep to that, but it's a good call to action when things get too much. I wonder, do you live by a guiding word? I mean, simplicity is nice in that it kind of relates to my life flat a bit as well, right? Yeah, like sometimes we have to prioritize. And that's okay. That's, that's strategic. That's smart. Like, let's do that. So my one word is going to be intention, which is about not relying on the default thing, questioning things, understanding the complexity that's sort of behind things, understanding the people and the relationships that exist behind things, and then like doing things on purpose. Brilliant. What would be your one call to action for people listening in today? I've been asked this before and it was, <laughs> I think my answer was um, to remove the systemic need for endless economic growth, no matter the cost. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's a bit difficult to understand or abstract, but I suppose the thing is about it's repositioning money as an enabler rather than a gatekeeper. And this is part of the ecological economics thing that we're talking about as well in terms of like having the, the, the economy is within society, is within the environment like it's something that we design it's something that we choose collectively and I recently had the incredible privilege of interviewing Jason Hickel Jason Hickel's written a lot about degrowth and the net appropriation of wealth and resources from the global south to the global north so I think the point is about understanding and actually uh, his more recent book is called Less is More. So that kind of relates to your simplicity and my intention point and the rest thing as well. It's like, it's about prioritization. And I think this is what it comes down to. And what a lot of our conversation has been about actually is like, how do we collectively decide how best to use and distribute scarce resources? That's the thing that we need to work out how to do better. Like we do work out how to do it. And I think we need to use expansive ideas of new economic thinking in order to figure out but that just like gives us more paints to color with in terms of what are the ways in which we might be able to find ways of doing that. Um, so I think we should like be open-minded, look at all of these different ideas and figure out, like take from these ideas and then figure out what is the best way that we can share and distribute those resources so that we can all live happy, flourishing lives. Thank you, Smith. Really appreciated your time today. Just before we go, do you want to let everyone know where they can find you across social media channels? Uh, I'm just going to give you the UKGBC website. <laughs> Put it in the show notes. Brilliant. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Smith. Thanks, Rachel. I love my conversation with Smith today. They clearly have a wealth of industry knowledge and technical expertise but I was most inspired by their fresh thinking and holistic approach to many complex issues we're facing as an industry and as a society. As always, we've provided links and resources in the show notes. 
please head over to the UK GBC website to find out how you can support their work by getting involved with their latest initiatives. Thanks to Stride to Glown for sponsoring this podcast. And if you want any further information on this podcast or Stride to Glown, then please visit stridetoglown.com and at Stride to Glown on social media. Links and resources from today's episode are in the show notes and you can follow me and let me know what you think of the show at Rachel J underscore Bell across Twitter and Instagram. Stand tall and talk soon. Stand tall and talk soon.